Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello, and a very warm welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood, the podcast which aims to take you back to simpler times and remember what it was like to grow up during the 1970s in Britain and the central role which television played in our and our families' lives back then. As always, thanks for your comments and emails. I've said it before and no doubt will say it again, that I'm always really moved by how many people get in touch and share their memories. It's really good to know that I'm by no means the only one that looks back on their 70s childhood with real warmth and affection. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so by leaving a comment on our Facebook page at My 70s TV Childhood, tweeting us at 70s Childhood, going to our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com or by emailing me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Now, when I was growing up in the 1970s in Warrington, which is in the northwest of England, I began to notice how things started to change. Where I first lived, Padgate, which was then a village, began to see vast new housing developments being built on what had been green fields as part of the Warrington Newtown Development Corporation. Close to the house my family lived in was a vast open area, which had once been a large RAF base, used to introduce generations of young men to the delights of national service after the war. We used to go for walks on the camp, as it was known locally, and eventually that was built upon, creating a huge new community, which inevitably transformed what had been a village into something more like a suburb. What I suppose I didn't realise at the time was there was a huge movement of people going on, Families were moving to my hometown from Liverpool, Manchester and Salford. And as the traditional industrial cities became depopulated, towns like my hometown, Warrington, grew. At primary school, I suddenly had lots of new friends with different accents. And what had been a medium-sized village school became very quickly an enormous school. I remember that there were over 50 children in my class during my last year there. And I wonder how the teachers managed. There were no classroom assistants, no SEN classes or anything like that. But I don't remember there being anything other than a happy, well-ordered class of children growing up together under the direction of the teacher. This is a phenomenon not just limited to the northwest. All over the country, the old traditional city centres were falling victim to the aspirational housing estates of the suburbs and the utopian visions of the planners of the new towns. Nowhere is this more dramatic than in the heart of traditional centres of manufacturing like Liverpool and Birmingham and Newcastle. And this is reflected on how television chose to see our changing country. In a previous episode, we took a look at one of the staples of the TV diet available during the 1970s, the sitcom, and many of you got in touch with your memories. 
I've been thinking about sitcoms again recently, largely because of something I've been listening to on the excellent BBC3 Extra radio station whilst driving to work in the morning. It has reminded me that several BBC TV programmes were re-recorded for broadcast on Radio 4 during the 1970s, and it's brought back memories of sitting in our kitchen at home listening to the likes of Dad's Army on the radio while my mother made tea. I suppose it made sense to use the same scripts and actors again to broaden the reach of the programmes, but it wasn't Dad's Army that I've been listening to. Oh no. It's one of my favourite comedy shows of the 1970s, which I'm very pleased to say has stood the test of time very well. It also deals with some of the issues we were just talking about of that time of change, of cities in decline, populations moving out to live in new housing estates, and a whole new sort of social aspiration to do better than previous generations. So let's go back to Newcastle in the early 1970s and see how two old mates, Terry and Bob, are facing up to life in their 30s. As I was saying, I managed to listen to the radio recordings of the first series of Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads during my morning commute this summer. And I have to say, they made me laugh out loud as I was driving and brought back memories of seeing some of the original shows as a child. That first series of 13 episodes was as close to comic perfection as a sitcom has ever been. I think it was down to a number of factors, not least the situation of the sitcom. For some reason, I managed to see many of the episodes when I was a child, and the show made a huge impression on me. Perhaps it was the first time I became aware of what I later found out was called pathos. Two friends realising that their youth was probably the best time in their lives, and realising that their youth had gone, and that the future wouldn't quite be the same. For those of you who don't remember the show, it was a sequel, and one of those rare things, a sequel, which was better and more fondly remembered than the original series it was based on. The original show, The Likely Lads, was broadcast on the BBC between 1964 and 1966, and it focused on two young men in their 20s living in Newcastle, pursuing their common interests of drinking, football and girls, although not necessarily in that order. The lads, Terry Collier, played by James Bolan, and Bob Ferris, played by Rodney Bewes, were best mates having grown up together and now face up to working in a factory whilst trying to be part of the swinging 60s, which seemed to be quite a tricky thing to do in the 1960s, particularly when you're in a, in a city like Newcastle. And that was the whole premise of the original series, two ordinary boys in a northern city trying to get by and deal with the challenges of growing up into adulthood. Unfortunately, Half of the original 20 episodes were wiped by the BBC, as was their policy in the 1960s and into the 70s. But very fortunately, that's not the case with the sequel. Go back to the situation. In the original show, Bob and Terry were solid working class boys. But Bob, 
like many of his contemporaries, hankered for something better and aspired to a more, well, let's call it middle-class existence. The original series ended with Bob deciding to join the army, leaving Terry alone. But there was also a twist. Terry decided to join up to be with Bob, who eventually was turned down because he had flat feet. So ironically, it was Terry who signed up and left Newcastle and then set up the premise for the sequel, which began about seven years later. Whatever happened to the Likely Lads deals with ageing. What happens when we gradually come to realise that we are not the young lads or lassies about town, and that with age comes responsibility and change? And what does that all mean for old friendships and ways of life? The show opens in 1973 with Bob, now a three-piece suited man on the up, aspiring to join the ranks of the middle classes and preparing for his marriage to Thelma Chambers, played by Bridget Forsyth. After which, they were going to settle down in middle-class bliss on the highly sought-after Elm Lodge housing estate, the acme of desirable 70s living. Over the years, I've watched many of the episodes more than once, and what stands out for me is the quality of the storylines and the writing, as well as excellent performances, especially by the two leads. I differentiate between the first series, which stands alone as a masterpiece of comedy, and the second series, which didn't quite hit the mark in my opinion, largely because the main theme of the initial series was whether Bob and Thelma would actually make it to the altar or not. So I suppose the credit for this comes down to the creators of the show, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. And they're now one of the most famous script writing teams in the world. And their joint CV covers some of the best loved TV series and countless Hollywood films from the last 50 or nearly 60 years. They first got together to write the original Likely Lads series in the early 60s. And the success of that show, largely based on Geordie Lafrenet's experiences of growing up in Newcastle, set them up on the way to future hits like Porridge, Going Straight, and, of course, Alfida's Own Pet often cited as the most popular comedy of the 1980s. They've also enjoyed big screen success writing scripts for films like Still Crazy, Killing Bono, and Sean Connery's, dare we say it, slightly unwise attempt to return as James Bond in Never Say Never Again. Each episode of that first series of Whatever Happened to the Likely Ads can be watched and enjoyed in isolation, which, which I think demonstrates the quality of the show. Yes, the underlying inevitable crawl of Bob towards his wedding day and the growing realisation that Terry and his relationship will never be quite the same is a constant presence. But most episodes pursue a self-contained narrative, which often packs an unexpected punch. In the first episode, we meet Bob and Thelma sitting in their new home, having a slideshow of their photo collection. Do you remember slideshows? At one point during my childhood, it seemed like you couldn't do anything without being subjected to people's slides, a bit bit like torture. We had slideshows from friends showing their holiday photographs, like Bob and Thelma were doing. We had slideshows at primary school, either of pictures from Sports Day or from guest speakers who had an interest in, I don't know, woodland creatures or who'd been to some interesting country in a different part of the world as part of their job. All very interesting, but from what I remember... Most slideshows followed a similar pattern. The lights would go down, the presenter would start to click through far too many slides, which might be interesting to start with, 
but will very quickly descend into being extremely boring and go on far too long. And at the end, there was always a moment of surprise and panic once the lights came back on, as people were shocked back into consciousness. I do remember at primary school having a slideshow on road safety or keeping off the railway or something like that from a visiting police officer. And when the lights came up, several of our teachers had actually nodded off and were fast asleep. Anyway, not for the first time, I digress. Back to Bob and Thelma. Their lovey-dovey reminiscences are rudely disturbed when a photo of a roaring drunk Terry appears on the screen, and Thelma seems genuinely upset by the very thought of Terry. Incidentally, even though Bob and Thelma had bought a house together on the fancy new estate, there was never any suggestion of them living there before they were married, because they were worried about what the neighbours might think. Which shows that this aspiration to be middle class came with some interesting ideas of what behaviour will be morally acceptable. Anyway, the next day Bob has to go to London on a business trip, and after a visit to a Soho strip club, a very 1970s plot device I must say, where he narrowly avoids beating Terry, he ends up on the train and, in a nice plot device, ends up sitting in a train carriage with an unknown stranger who he can't see because the lights have failed. In the darkness, Bob tells his new acquaintance a little story. How far are you going? Newcastle. For God's sake, sit down. We all be black and blue by the time we get there. (laughs) Are you from up that way? Uh, Near there. I've been back for ages. Just come out of the army. Oh, I enjoy it. Got a lot out of it. Got a lot out of it. Uh, I nearly went in once. Could have done a lot worse. Actually, there's a funny story attached to it. See, I had this mate. Well, my best mate, you know. Very close. Anyway, a, a few years back, I decided it might be a good idea to join the services. You know, get away for a bit. See something of the world, so I signed on. But when I went away, this mate of mine, he couldn't take it. He went to pieces. He couldn't function without me. I suppose it's like losing your right arm. So he signs on just to be with me. And you'll never guess. <laughs> he gets in, and I get discharged flat feet. I'm free again, and he's in for three years. <laughs> I can still see the look on his face. I still laugh when I think about it. I mean, it's a sad story in a way, because he hasn't spoken to me like since, you know. But when you're telling a story, I mean, when you're telling someone else, you've got to see the funny side. You've got to laugh. (laughs) You bastard. Terry. You rotten bastard. You've got to laugh, haven't you? You've got to see the funny side. You've got to laugh at the fact that your best mate missed the most important years of his life. It is a joke. I'm very sorry, Terry. Sorry? What does that mean? That's what we said two minutes ago when you stepped on me foot. So the likely lads are thrown together again. Terry, now invalided out of the army with an injured knee and a failed marriage to a German woman, heads back to Newcastle to try and put his life back together and to reconnect with his old mates and haunts. But the reality is, the city has changed, and his mates have largely moved on, and many of his old haunts have been demolished to make way for the estates of the future. In his early 30s, all he has to look forward to, as the theme tune says, is the past. But, in rekindling his relationship with Bob, he finds someone with whom he can share these memories, and holds on to the brief promise 
that maybe Bob won't marry Thelma and things will be like they used to be. But of course, we all know Bob is always going to marry Thelma. And whilst Terry and Bob's friendship remains, it will never be like it was when they were young. If you haven't seen the show, you're probably thinking, well, this doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs. But Clement and Lafrenet develop the characters and their personalities so quickly and convincingly that you become engaged with them right from the start and you really care as a viewer about what will happen to them. As mentioned earlier, each episode in the first series is building towards the inevitable marriage of Bob to Thelma, despite Terry's efforts to put a spanner in the works, but they can be enjoyed on their own. For example, the episode, I'll Never Forget What's Her Name, deals with the two lads simply sitting, chatting and looking back at the girls they've been out with in the past, in the sort of conversation that happens every day between old friends. Both Terry and Bob show a bit of bravado in recalling past romantic triumphs, but gradually come to the realisation that even though they both went out with lots of girls and young women, that neither was quite the Lothario they once imagined. The most famous and well-remembered episode of the show was called No Hiding Place, and it centres around an issue which bedevilled football fans of all ages in the 1970s, how to avoid finding out the score in a football match, the highlights of which were due to be shown later that evening. Now, just cast your mind back to the days when the only live football on television was the FA Cup final. And then we had the World Cup and the European Championships every couple of years. Everything else, until the advent of Sky's coverage in the 1990s, was highlights only. Thank God I hear my wife saying if she's listening to this episode. Yes, this episode revolves around Bob and Terry trying to avoid hearing the score of an England match played in the afternoon and the attempts of their mate Flint, played by the great Brian Glover, to let them know the score. All made more interesting by a £10 bet on it, which, I have to admit, was a lot of money in 1973. I'm sure many of you remember the storyline. But after lots of narrow misses, Bob and Terry end up back at Bob and Thelma's due house with the curtains drawn, ready to watch the highlights. Terry then admits he caught a glimpse of a billboard as they were driving in a taxi through the city centre. Pre-match nerves, I expect. Almost there. You know, I would have thought Flint would have given us more of a run for his money. It's been quite easy, hasn't it? There was one very dodgy moment. Yeah, you mean in the church? No, in the hospital. When I came round, I caught a glimpse of the headlines in the Evening Chronicle. Well, why didn't you tell me? Well, I didn't want to upset you. So why upset me now? I've been upset on my own for the last four hours. It's all right, it's all right. I'm not going to say anything. Oh, you've got to tell me now. You can't just say that then not tell me. I want to know. I've got to know. I didn't see the score. I only saw England F. Pardon? <laughs> England F. I saw the word England and the first letter of the second word. F, see? Oh, my God. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's obvious. England flop. Not necessarily. Or England fail. Or England fiasco. Well, get a grip of yourself, man. You're falling to pieces. It, it could be anything. It could be England fight back. But why? After early setback. Fight back after early setback, yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, oh. England forge ahead or, or even England five. Or England fade. Why did you have to tell me? Oh, shut your face, man, will you? And then, as the boys are about to watch the match, Flint comes in. Bob had forgotten to lock the door, and despite his trying to let them off the bet, they send him away with £10 in his hands, 
and then settle down to watch the game. You legless twit. <laughs> Why didn't you make an open house, invent that one-legged news vendor round and all? Oh, shut up. Shut up, shut up and pipe down. Still got the match to enjoy? Let's at least salvage something from today. We still don't know what it was England effed. <laughs> England find that touch. England failed to save Ferris a fiver, a tenner. You'll get your money, you'll get your money. We're now taking you over to Vienna for the finals of the European Figure Skating Championships. You what? This replaces the England-Bulgaria soccer match, which was postponed earlier today because of a waterlogged pitch. Pure comedy gold. Simple, but so effective. And this episode has been repeated again and again, and it was even remade by Anton Deck of all people, as a tribute to the original Geordie Likely lads. So, eventually, after lots of scrapes, several doubts expressed by Bob, and lots of fond reminiscing for times gone by, the wedding day comes around, and Bob and Thelma finally marry, with Terry as Bob's best man replacing the never-seen Frank Clark, Bob's original choice. Life, it feels, will never be the same again for anyone, and Bob and Terry share a farewell moment as the newlyweds head off to Norway for their skiing honeymoon. I did it. I, I did it. Home and dry. Thanks. I didn't do anything? Right. Thanks for not doing anything. Listen, right there. You were out of time, didn't I? Like this marriage, putting it down and putting you off. And, and he wasn't taking any notice of me. What I'm trying to say is that, well, you've done the right thing getting married. And, and all the best, kidder. Cheers, Terry. Perhaps one day you and you two. May I have your attention, please? Will the passengers on flight 638 for Oslo please proceed through channel B? Well, there's your call. All right. It's funny. You and me, like, end of, well... End of the line. End of an era. I'd be different people now, different scene. Old days and old ways. Gone forever. All in the past. Can't turn the clock back. Be wrong to try. End of an era. Nothing's going to be the same again. What day did you get back? Tuesday week. Tuesday? There's a dark match that night against the Fat Oaks. Is that great? I'll pick you up at eight. Smash it. <laughs> As I've already said, the second series didn't quite hit the same mark, and the less said about the feature film version, the better. During the 1970s, it seemed to be compulsory for all successful sitcoms to be made into films, so as well as movie versions of On the Buses, Bless This House, and even, God help us, Love Thy Neighbour, we got a Likely Lads film spin-off. It was also rumoured that Rodney Buse and James Bowen fell out towards the end of their screen partnership, and if that's true, I think that's a real shame. Their chemistry on screen was so genuine and authentic that you really believed they were lifelong best mates, and that's why we cared about them. James Bowen went on to become a big star of 1970s British TV, landing the starring role of Jack Ford in When the Boat Comes In, or When the Bert Comes In, as it was named by me and my friends, the Depression-era saga of mining, poverty and fishing in South Shields 
or somewhere else, I can't remember the name of it, that was a sort of stand-in for South Shields, was a landmark piece of 70s TV and probably deserves an episode of this podcast in its own right. So let me think about that. Further success followed for him in Only When I Laugh, the Beinebecker tapes, and ultimately, in everyone's favourite retired copper's drama, New Tricks. As for Rodney Bewes, the likely lads was, I think it's fair to say, the pinnacle of his career, and he's still known by most people as Bob Ferris, and I do hope he was happy with that. For Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, whatever happened to the likely lads was just the start of a golden period in their careers, and as they were finishing the second series of the show, they were about to launch another sitcom, this time based around life in a prison, HMP Slade, featuring the adventures of an old lag, Norman Stanley Fletcher. Now, who'd ever be interested in something like that? More in a future episode, I suspect, so watch this space. Well, that's all we've got time for now. I hope you've enjoyed getting to know Bob and Terry again. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or on anything else we've covered in this or our previous 50-odd episodes, you can do so on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. Leave a comment on our Facebook page at My70stvchildhood. Tweet at 70stvchildhood, or you can just email me, oliver, at my70stvchildhood.com. Take care, look after yourself, and join us again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.